Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Uh, I meant to bring this up last week, actually, our first show back. Yep. But um, I forgot, and now I'm going to talk about it now. So we are two weeks into the new decade, and I was realizing that, you know, we're in the, we're in the 20s now. Uh-huh. Oh, sure. And it's... We, we we never really centered on anything to call the last two decades. Like, like as a consensus, it was like the aughts or the teens or... Uh-huh. But nobody ever said those things. And now that we're in the 20s again, you know, it was the roaring 20s 100 years ago. Sure. And I was trying to think of the descriptor that will apply... This is hard to do, sort of prospectively. You, you don't, you don't say. It's, yeah, no, I think it's a lot of like um, it's a glass half full, glass half empty hard, kind of test where like saying... depending on what people suggest, I'm gonna guess that Bill suggests things that might be a little snarky. We'll, well see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, are you saying it's hard to describe something that hasn't happened yet? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm asking you to project. Uh, hmm. I heard someone say, I hope it's the soaring twenties, the soaring twenties, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, an uneventful snoring twenties, right? Uh, I would take that. We dig a lot of tunnels, the boring 20s. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I I thought, uh, I think it might be appropriate to maybe call it the vibing 20s. People are vibing right now. Ooh. Now, I don't know if that's going to last another decade, but people yeah. are certainly doing that now. I hope that doesn't last another yeah. decade. I don't love it. Well, we'll check back in with you in 10 years when sure. we figure this out. Yeah. So, we, but, uh, uh, Until then. We have a show, a real show. <laughs> I'm told it says here on the paper that we do. Yeah, so uh, we're chatting to Frank Runyon about the Weinstein trial. Uh, we had a good talk with him. Yeah, he's in the courtroom for us, so he got to give us a little insight about how things are going so far. And, and we talked a bit about what to look for in the coming weeks. Yeah, it was a good chat, and we've got some good news stories. But before we get to them, uh, we wanted to once again maybe call for you, uh, loyal listeners, to perhaps. Leave us some reviews on iTunes. Folks, I I don't mean to sound too dire or dramatic, but my family is dying, okay? <laughs> and they subsist on likes and reviews in iTunes or other relevant podcast platforms. Uh, but seriously, and, you know, we, we, we say this all the time, but we wanted to really sort of hammer it home. If you guys like Pro Se... Let us know about it. We are gluttons for compliments, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're always they, looking for some. They do make us feel good, but if you're wondering why people ask for this kind of thing on a podcast, it's because it really does help other people find our show. I mean, right. it, it boosts you up on the charts and then people know to listen. So um, the written reviews are the ones that do that the most. So if people could do that, we'd be really, really grateful. Thanks. So on to the show. Uh, the first story this week that we're going to talk about is a uh, something I love talking about, defamation lawsuits. Um, and the media. And the media. As it turns out. A, uh, a fairly well-known Harvard Law School professor uh, sued the New York Times this week for libel, um, for linking him to... Jeffrey Epstein, the late disgraced financier, um, uh, he the the professor called it a case of quote clickbait defamation, which then in sort of a metatextual thing became clickbait. Yes. That was the, yeah, uh, the, right. uh, the headline. Um, uh, it's interesting for a whole host of sort of substantive legal reasons, but it's also interesting just because of who this guy is. So yeah. I didn't read this story when it was in the Times. What What's the story in, in question? What happened here? So in September, the Times ran a story called uh, A Harvard Professor Doubles Down. If you take Epstein's money, do it in secret. Yeah. Um, so the professor in question is Lawrence Lessig, uh, who, if you've never heard of him, he is uh, he's a professor at Harvard Law. Um he was the f- founder of the Creative Commons, which is a platform, uh, sort of a system for um, works on the internet. Uh, you know, various copyrighted works to be shared more easily. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, he's a policy sort of advocate and activist. Um, he litigated the case against um, when when uh, copyright terms were extended. It was sort of derogatorily known as the the Mickey Mouse uh, copyright extension because the idea was that Disney was lobbying to push copyrights further. Lessig sort of famously litigated that case before the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, so he's a he's a well known. Uh, legal mind. Um, the story deals with the fact that uh, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, their media lab, uh, secretly accepted roughly $800,000 from Epstein, who um, I don't think we really need to get into Epstein. Everyone remembers who he is. But yeah. um, he was arrested last year on sex trafficking charges after years of claims uh, to, to that effect. Um, and he's a convicted sex offender for many years prior to that. Right, exactly. Yes. Um, and then last year he uh, killed himself in prison. Um, so now in the story that the New York Times ran in September, uh, Lessig ultimately condemned the acceptance of that donation by MIT. Um, but he's quoted at one point in the story saying, quote, if you're going to take the money, you damn well better make it anonymous. So his his point was sort of nuanced, which uh, you know is an interesting thing to talk yeah. about in the context of defamation. Uh, but his point was that that you don't necessarily want to help bad people improve their images or their legacy or whatever or their reputation. Right, that like, would be per to... se bad to do. Exactly. Yeah, that was sort of his a lot point. of. Um people that get in trouble do go on like a, a charity spree afterwards. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, fun, fun little side fact. The, uh, the business school at Fordham is named for a dude who had a whole big s- series of, of SEC violations and things like that. So nice. it's a thing that, that happens. Um, yeah. So, uh, but, but as I mentioned, the article um, uh, had a fairly direct headline that maybe didn't quite fit the nuance of the story. I'll say it again. Quote, a Harvard professor doubles down. If you take Epstein's money, do it in secret. Okay, so we, we can kind of see the disconnect between what he, what what thought he's trying to articulate and the way the Times framed the story. What is he? So he's suing them now, and he's saying what? Yeah. So on Monday, Lessig filed a defamation lawsuit in Massachusetts federal court. Um, as you noted, he doesn't really he doesn't dispute the direct quotes that are in the story. Yeah, he's um, not saying like they made stuff up that I said. Right. Yeah. But what he's saying is that the headline and the lead were quote clickbait um, yeah. that, that misrepresented what he actually said to the point where it was harmful and defamatory. The quote, defendants actions here are part of a growing journalistic culture of clickbaiting the use of shocking headline and or lead to entice readers to click on a particular article, irrespective of the truth of the headline. Defendants are fully aware that many, if not most readers never read past the clickbait and that their takeaway concerning the target of the headline is limited to what they read in the headline. So it's this idea that that you know the the story itself may have been pulled from these direct quotes but by the way that they framed it that the way that they presented it here in 2020 in the way that we consume news yeah. that can can sort of get across the threshold for defamation. I know we're a bunch of journalists sitting here talking about this so maybe I like this story more than most people would just because of that but there is something really interesting here about yeah has culture changed and we're reading the news differently and so yeah. the law maybe needs to account for that in some way. I mean it's a really interesting question. Right. I mean you you Google News search something and you look at 15 different headlines and yeah. uh, you know you see it shared on social media. Yeah, there the is, social media is a big aspect it does where raise, people only read it, you know, as it's scrolling through their feed. Right. So it raises interesting questions, but um y- you know, after this lawsuit was filed, there was a considerable amount of blowback from different legal commentators um on the grounds that the lawsuit maybe uh doesn't 
carry legal water. Um, uh, some different commentators went so far as to say that this is the kind of sort of free speech uh, quashing lawsuit that we've heard referred to as a SLAP. A, yeah. um, that's an acronym, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Yeah. Listeners will probably remember that there was a John Oliver segment about SLAPs a few months ago. Um, so it's sort of been, been in the discourse. Um, the problem here according to critics, is that the suit essentially looks at the headline and the lead in isolation, yeah. as opposed to analyzing the entire article. Um, that's not typically how courts look at defamation. When they look at the speech, they analyze the total thing that was said, not some piece of it. Uh, the full article includes these direct quotes from Lessig, where he says things sort of to this effect. Um, taking them out of context and putting them in the in the headline may have been poor framing by the New York Times. The New York Times gets dunked on all the time yeah, on social sure. media for framing issues Im- improperly. Um, and, and you know, the, 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 but the article makes clear in the in the story that, that he ultimately denounces this uh, donation and, and sort of puts the nuance that he says is so sorely lacking from the head and the lead. Um, so the bar for defamation is is very high and, yeah. and especially when you're dealing with a public figure like Lawrence Lessig it is it is very very high so and yeah yeah i mean it sounds to me like even if the court on some level agrees that the landscape has changed about how people read articles maybe the defamation laws just aren't in the same place and the jurisprudence just doesn't back up how culture has changed totally and um the other thing that's worth noting here that i sort of teased up top is that there was some discussion of the fact that it was lawrence lessig filing this lawsuit i mean he is a pretty widely respected and influential you know sometimes uh controversial figure in his legal reasoning or his takes but um but he's a, a guy who's been known as a fairly thoughtful and and you know, well-regarded Harvard professor. So that you it doesn't know, seem wing nutty. No, or, you know, within, yeah, or like right. an axe grinder. Right. Know. When when you hear the term slap lawsuits thrown around, it is often by you know powerful corporate interests that want to go after someone who's criticizing them, or as you mentioned, I I won't say wing nuts, but you know, <laughs> folks who yeah um are fit a different fact pattern than Lawrence Lessig. Yeah. So that that's certainly an interesting thing to watch for. He has very long-winded and. Again, nuanced reasons for why he is the one doing this, um, uh, but it will be a a very interesting defamation case to watch as it goes forward. So moving on, um, you know, if you guys think, you know, we're here on Thursday, we're 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 kind of trudging toward the end of the week. If you think you had a bad week, just be glad that you are not Michael Avenatti, um, the. Uh, uh, somewhat disgraced, uh, embattled, you see that uh, yeah. uh, thrown around a lot, a former attorney of Stormy Daniels. Uh, he showed up for a California state bar uh, hearing on Tuesday. Um, that hearing was was to potentially revoke his law license uh, for embezzling money from a client. Pretty serious thing. Uh, now, during the hearing, he was arrested <laughs> for violating the terms of a pretrial release for an entirely separate set of client embezzlement allegations. Now, Amber can speak to this. I am somewhat frequently arrested mid-meeting at Hero <laughs> um, it, It's a common thing. Right. I yeah. don't, I don't, I don't like it, but no. it happens sometimes. It, yes. I love that he was arrested for something that wasn't about the current proceeding. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, well, that's because, let's get into some of that. Yes. Well, the reason for that is because we could literally spend an entire show talking about the the fall from grace for Mr. Avenatti, um, because uh, you know he sort of we, we we'll talk about that later. But there there are no shortage of 
sort of financial and embezzlement crime sort of plaguing him. So like I say, on Tuesday, he went to the California State Bar, um, which has been asked to revoke his law license um, because uh, a man named Gregory Barella Jr. claims that uh, Avenatti, uh, Avenatti had represented him in this intellectual property dispute. Uh, that ended in a $1.6 million settlement, and this guy Barella uh, says that Avenatti uh, stole that money. He's says stealing. I don't it's think, illegal. I don't think this guy should be allowed to represent uh, clients if he's taking their money. Uh, and so there's a hearing convened for that. And uh, Barella, you know, he only decided to take that legal action after all this news began surfacing last year um, about uh, Avenatti embezzling money from other clients. Right. Um, and that kind of brings us up to Tuesday's hearing. So um, in uh, in the spring of 2019, there was just this like flood of of uh, lawsuits and legal actions brought against Avenatti for embezzling money from clients, including Stormy Daniels herself. He, uh, she said that she stole or that, that Avenatti stole money while, while he was negotiating her book deal and things like that. But the most wide ranging of these uh, came from federal prosecutors in L.A., which issued a 36-count indictment against Avenatti, accusing him of taking upwards of $12 million from four different clients uh, and uh, and also committing tax fraud That's on top so of That's so much. Yeah. Um, so that case is itself preparing to go to trial, and these are criminal proceedings. And so Avenatti struck a deal with prosecutors to stay out of jail while the case was was going along. Yeah. And so during a break in the Tuesday bar hearing from the Barella in the IP dispute, the IRS agents sort of came into the building and arrested him. Uh, and then the U.S. Attorney's Office eventually claimed, uh, could, sort of confirmed that he had violated the terms of this pretrial uh, arrangement. I see. He had, he, was, yeah, he had struck this agreement to stay out of prison. Uh, they did not say what the violation was, um, and uh, that's, that's still under seal. But he's been taken away. He offered a, a, a passing comment to reporters that just said, completely innocent. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, and that does seem to be what he said about all of this all yeah, along. Like and, it, yeah, and, and, and all these things, I mean, I'm, there, there are lots of them. They are still pending, so we'll see. But there's certainly a considerable amount of smoke. And uh, that's not all. Also on Tuesday, <laughs> same hearing now. Super Tuesday. We have, we have two different sort of, uh, you know, embezzlement claims against the guy that are proceeding. He's arrested for one of them. Also, though, during Tuesday, during a break in the hearing, prior to him being arrested... Avenatti steps out to phone in to a, uh, a hearing, a conference for a, uh, a judicial proceeding in New York. And that has to do with claims that he tried to extort uh, the athletic shoe company, the, the athletic wear company Nike for upwards of like $20 million. He, he was trying to shake, he allegedly was trying to shake him down for many millions of dollars in exchange for sort of keeping silent about, he, he has... <laughs> He has clients that are student athletes, and he was going to say, he was going to keep quiet, you know, claims that Nike had paid them in contravention of NCAA yeah. rules. So basically, he is alleged to have extorted Nike. Uh, that case is also heading to trial, and he had to phone in to that conference because uh, he had tried to get the trial delayed. Uh, he lost. The trial is not delayed. <laughs> so this is like three different L's he's catching on this two is... different coasts in one I mean, day. Can you believe that this was a person that there were headlines out there about, like, 
he's going to be a real contender for the presidency oh, when yeah. he was toying with that idea. This is like a real flood zone defense, right? Just commit so many crimes That's that right. for like logistical issues, you can't be convicted of any of them. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, it's, he's certainly going to test the bounds of that. I should say. I mean, I. I, I think I began the segment by saying if you had a bad week, this isn't even, that's not even accurate. This was all on one day. This right. is Tuesday at the California right. State Bar hearing. But yeah, like you say, I mean, this was, I mean, I mean, whatever. The guy would have like a meteoric rise. He, he positioned himself as sort of this, you know, vocal anti-Trump uh, right. legal operator uh, representing Stormy Daniels and other people. And, you know, uh, when, when, when multiple people are making claims against you of this nature, uh, this kind of stuff's going to happen, and it's uh, starting to spiral for our man, Mike. The Me Too movement's first blockbuster criminal trial is underway as disgraced Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein stands trial in New York court on charges of rape. If you haven't been following along, we're here to catch you up. We're joined by Frank Runyon, who's been in the courtroom covering the trial for Law 360. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thanks for having me. So Frank, I'm happy to have you here because I think everybody knows about the Me Too movement, has read something about Weinstein in the last couple of years, but um, I've sort of lost track of where we are and how we've ended up in court with criminal charges. So you just sort of set us up with the big picture here. Sure. Um, the allegations against Harvey Weinstein stem back to some excellent journalism and uh, with the uh, New Yorker and the New York Times both breaking stories um, about uh, a long history of uh, sexual misconduct that these women accuse him of. Um, and uh, since then, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, more than 80 women have come wow. out um, and accused him um, of some form of misconduct. And now that has distilled down into uh, charges that are both in New York and in Los Angeles. Um, but in New York, uh, the case is really just focused in on a couple of women. Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't even realize it was up to 80 overall that have made some form of accusation. That's just so many. Um, well, I was just going to say he's, he's like... It's it's another thing to keep in mind too is that now he's become so synonymous with this, but we I think we can easily forget how big of a power player he was in sure. Hollywood leading up to this and how sort of uh, much of a watershed that, that all these accusations were. Oh, definitely. Were I mean, they... think of almost any of your favorite movies from a certain right. time period, and he was involved in them, so he had a lot of clout and a lot of power. Right. Um, but let's get a little bit more into what you're covering here in New York and this case kicking off. Um, tell us more about the actual charges he's facing in this criminal trial. Okay, so he's facing uh, five counts in this indictment. Um, things have shifted around um, over the last, um, gosh, since it was 2018. Um, but um, there are now five counts, um, and uh, two of them are for predatory sexual assault. Um, two are for uh, rape, one in the first, one in the third degree, and then another one is for a criminal sexual act. Okay, so those are ones about, like, discreet actions uh, against certain women. And then there's some broader charges too, right? Right. So the rape charges and the criminal sexual act uh, charges are for specific instances. Um, And the uh, predatory sexual assault charge um, is one that basically seeks to establish a pattern of behavior. Mm -hmm. An allegation that he's a serial sexual abuser. Yeah. 
um, and the prosecutors are bringing in um, additional witnesses to help establish that pattern, even though um, those crimes that the women are going to describe, um, like uh, Annabella Sierra, for instance, um, are beyond the statute of limitations. Yeah, well, it's funny It's funny that you bring up the statute of limitations because I think that's been an interesting story to watch here as this has moved toward trial, is that, you know, we just mentioned 80 women, and but, you, but there's been some really great reporting on how many of these cases were, you know, were, were past the statute of limitations or they were outside of the jurisdiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting sort of how, uh, you know, how we got here of, uh, you know, how we're now down to we're in court and we're really going to sort of sort of get to a few of these specific charges. And it is interesting that some of these witnesses can prove this pattern um, and and be a part of the case even outside of that statute right. of limitations. But yeah. also this is interesting, too, because that's a really serious charge to level. I mean, it has some pretty stiff penalties potentially, right? Absolutely. Um, it's definitely the most serious charge that he's facing with the potential of uh, life imprisonment. Wow. So um, if the defense can... Um, beat that one, um, then I, I imagine that they'll be um, happy with it. But all of the charges are obviously incredibly serious. I mean, this is really just, uh, it feels almost wild to be talking about this. I don't know how you feel covering it, but this is really a blockbuster trial by all measures. It's a well-known figure. It's one of the biggest issues of the day that it ties into Me Too. Yeah. It's so many charges. And like you said, it's a huge potential sentence here. So I think all eyes are going to be watching. Um, to that end, it's it's been a little unusual even to kick it off. I mean, we're only in the very early stages here, but it's already been pretty exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on right now? Well, jury selection. Mm-hmm. Which normally, which normally, fest, and right? <laughs> just nuts and bolts. What day did we, did the did the trial start? Uh, so it started on January sixth. Gotcha. Um, okay. So the trial started, um, and what that looked like was um, some early motions, and then jury selection began, where they basically have been bringing in uh, more than a hundred people a day, mm. um, and they have uh, run into. Um, a large percentage of people um, that are basically saying that they are incapable of being um, fair and impartial jurors, even not having seen any evidence at all. Well, it feels like a law school hypo, right? Like it's yes. like it's like the most villainous defendant that you can think of when you're trying to get to these neutral jurors. That was covered on every cable news show, every newspaper yeah. in America. I mean, this is it's so much different than something that's even regional. Like you couldn't even move this to another jurisdiction mm-hmm. and have any different result. So how's the judge handling that? So it's interesting. I think that there is a misconception that if any of these jurors have, um, you know, read Ronan Farrow's book, for instance, mm-hmm. or yeah. if you've been following the coverage, um, then you can't possibly be a um, juror on this case. And the judge has uh, gone to great lengths to explain several times to each of these pools that, no, in fact, you could have um, kept up with all of this news about Harvey Weinstein. And as long as you can set that aside, accept the evidence that is going to be presented in court and promise not to make a decision and be fair and impartial, then that's fine. You can serve. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think most people do think like, oh, if I follow this too closely, they're going to kick me out of this jury. Yeah, we would be remiss if we uh, ended the discussion of of jury selection without a mention of a very famous juror that we saw in court, right? Gigi Hadid. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, that was quite a moment that sent a couple of the pool reporters uh, next to me scrambling with the tabloids in particular. (laughs) Sure. Um, And... um, 
much to my dismay, I, I didn't immediately recognize the name and had to be cued in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was really interesting because she said not only that she knew Harvey Weinstein, but that she knew several other people whose names may be mentioned at trial or be witnesses. Yeah. Um, Salma Hayek and um, a young singer named Ryan Beatty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's um, as if we needed another celebrity involved in anything going on with this case. Yeah. And then we have Gigi Hadid in the jury pool. Um, so maybe we should move on from the jury selection, talk a bit more about what we're going to ex- expect in the, the coming days in the trial and weeks in the trial. First of all, let's just start with how long is this one projected to take? Uh, so the judge has been saying it's going to take about six to eight weeks. Wow. Um, so it comes a lot can happen in six to eight weeks in, in uh, testimony there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so it is, uh, it's been a media circus, obviously, mm-hmm. um, uh, with uh, people lining up um, as early as uh, 7.30 in the morning, even wow. earlier, um, trying to get in many not getting in. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's definitely been uh, represented on a small scale, the attention um, just in terms of uh, the media that are trying to get in the room. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the players. Who um, Who's going to be representing Weinstein as we're, as we're going forward? So uh, Donna Rotino is the lead counsel, um, and she's made headlines by being a, um, a critic of the Me Too movement um, and raising questions uh, about uh, some potential uh, chilling effects, mm-hmm. even on chivalry itself. Yeah. Um, and uh, he is uh, flanked by several other lawyers. They've capped it. He's only allowed four at the table, <laughs> but then they've got a row. Yeah. They can fill with jury consultants and, yeah. and, and the rest. So um, it, Damon Tronis and, and Arthur Idala. Right. Uh, um, others. And what do we know about the about the the lead prosecutor who um, who's going to be trying this case? So the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is represented by um, ADA Joan Aluzzi, as well as uh, Megan Hast, um, and they have been fighting a flurry of of motions on a daily basis from Weinstein's side, um, including bids to have. The judge recuse himself, um, mm. get rid of uh, whole swaths of, of jurors, um, and uh, even dealing with issues of juror misconduct on social media already. Yeah, so a hot start for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, I feel like every time we talk about any little bit of this, things that would normally be boring are very exciting in this case. Um, one thing we did mention earlier was how many celebrities are potentially going to be involved in the case in some capacity. Are we expecting to hear from them on the stand? What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, aside from the possibility that Gigi Hadid could be on the jury, Right. Um, so let's set that aside for a second. Um, other names that have been mentioned um, and will be mentioned at trial, or they could be witnesses, include Salma Hayek, um, Charlize Theron, um, Rosie Perez, um, and the list goes on. Wow. Um, so it's it's a yeah, pretty so high profile, remarkable I mean, yeah. list of people. Yeah. We also have a legal celebrity that's yes, been involved in this, and that's David Boyce. We've talked about him on the show a lot. Boyce Schiller, Giant Firm. Can you tell us uh, how he may be involved in this trial? Yeah, so, so the very first day, um, the um, Manhattan District Attorney's Office uh, came out and said, you know what, we're going to put David Boys on the stand if you don't stipulate um, that uh, your client was using a um, secretive shadowy firm called Black Cube mm. to um, harass and uh, investigate potential witnesses in this case. Yeah. And so we want you to stipulate to that fact, or we'll put David Boys on the stand. Wow. That, I mean, 
for the legal listeners out there, that may be the biggest celebrity of all to potentially show up on the stand yeah. and hear more about like the inner workings of what he was doing on behalf of Weinstein. Yeah. So, um, you know, you said six to eight weeks we might be watching this. Um, paint in broad strokes for us and sort of tell us what, you know, what does Weinstein need to show here? What do the prosecution, what do the prosecutors need to show here? What's sort of the crux of, of their arguments? Well, I think they have two very different narratives that they're trying to tell. Um, I think Weinstein um, is putting forward the narrative of the casting couch. Um, this is something that happens in Hollywood. You might not like it. It might be distasteful, but it's not illegal. It wasn't criminal. Um, and that's essentially what they're saying, that these were consensual encounters, mm -hmm. anything that they might be hearing about. Um, and uh, the district attorney's office is uh, doing quite the opposite, saying this is a serial sexual predator. And, um, and that's why they might be able to bring in um, a whole list of witnesses to prove that point. Yeah, in particular. I mean, that that's definitely um, the most serious charge that he's facing. Yeah. Um, it's, he could go to jail for life. Stakes couldn't be higher, Frank. Thanks for explaining what to watch. I think you're going to be too busy to be in the studio with us for a while. <laughs> um, but we'll be looking forward to reading all of your dispatches from the courtroom. Thanks. We like dinner show is something offbeat, and Bill, you've got a really good one for us today. Yeah, good is one adjective for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk about it. Sorry, it's really good. something. I like the uh, before we went on the air, the uh, the other two esteemed co-hosts of this show were suggesting that we call in to my father, who is a uh, divorce attorney. Yes. Um, this is a family law story. Could have had him on. I'm sure he's listening. Look, uh, your dad is invited on the show anytime. That's true. That's a, like that's, a, that's, that's, that's a standing invite. Uh, so a Kansas man. Uh, is seeking to resolve his custody battle with his ex-wife with a trial by combat. <laughs> <laughs> this is a real thing that happened in a real court oh, on this so real plane good. of existence. What did he say? Uh, he said he wants to meet his ex-wife and her attorney, quote, on the field of battle where he will rend their souls from their corporeal bodies. Rend their souls. Well, okay. I I mean, this is, it's, it's like funny and then, but I mean, I don't know. It's also like kind of, like these are, Murder threats. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on how you look at I it, I mean, yes. what, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a friggin' lawyer, but uh, let's, let's talk more about it. Yeah. So I wanted to give a shout-out to the Carroll Times Herald, Great which reporting. was the, uh, the local paper that found this story. Um, David Ostrom, who is uh, he's a Kansas man, but this is an Iowa court. Um, he asked the judge in a legal filing to let him resolve the case, which is over his ability to communicate with his kids. It's weird that there would be any sort of disconnect here. Um, via combat with a samurai sword. Oh, it's very specific on the on, yeah, the, on he, the weaponry. Well, because he specifically asked for 12 weeks of lead time in, in order to uh, forge a sword. Great, yep. great. Or, you know, or to acquire one look, in some other lead manner. time. Okay, right. you can look at that as a weird request, or you can look at it this way. A person that's asking for trial by combat doesn't already have the sword, and that makes me feel calm and good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah. that's true. Um, can, glad he doesn't have it like yeah. on hand. Could break into a uh, into a pawn shop like in Pulp Fiction, Bruce Willis, <laughs> yeah. find yeah. it on the top right. shelf. So he apparently saw a 2016 ruling uh, in New York that said dueling had never been formally abolished. Oh, there are lots of things that are not formally abolished. It doesn't mean we get to revive them at a right. moment's notice, twelve well, weeks' notice. Tell that to. David Ostrom, <laughs> quote, 
To this day, trial by combat has never been explicitly banned or restricted as a right in these United States. I love when people say these United States <laughs> yep. without a hint of irony. I mean, I, maybe he was doing it with a hint of irony. He also noted that his wife, uh, sorry, his ex-wife. Yeah, um, please. <laughs> uh, could choose her attorney as her champion or stand-in fighter. So, of course, I mean, that would be ridiculous to suggest she would have to fight, you know. She can have a champion. Yeah, I mean... This is just such clear Game of Thrones territory. Right. Except the samurai sword throws me. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, has this guy never heard of a broadsword? What's this guy's problem? Right. Uh, Okay, well, what... I mean, first of all, unbelievable that this guy's marriage didn't last for just just for one thing. (laughs) It's weird. He seems really reasonable. Yeah. (laughs) Normal, good guy. So can you imagine being the wife's attorney and you actually have to respond to this yeah it's it's one of those what a day in the office yeah uh they did respond though um they filed a motion to uh perhaps unsurprisingly uh refuse this request no way quote it should be noted that just because the u.s and iowa constitutions do not specifically prohibit battling another person with a deadly katana sword it does prohibit a court sitting in equity from ordering the same Uh, that's good. I mean, he, uh, that's, 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 that's good lawyering right there. Yep. In, uh, in, in another surprising move, he then asked the court to suspend Ostrom's visitation rights entirely and order him to undergo a court-ordered psychological evaluation. I mean, we knew that's where this was going. That, that ask seems inevitable. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he threatened to fight his wife's attorney to death with a sword. With a sword that he's going to specially forge. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, in a response to the response, uh, Ostrom, uh, said, no, no, no. Trial by combat was, uh, not always won by, uh, by, by, you know, someone killing someone else, but it could also end when a party, quote, cries craven and yields to the other. Oh, (laughs) yielding. I didn't even think of that. Well, this is perfectly, this is perfectly okay. Quote. Respondent and counsel have proven themselves to be cravens by refusing to answer the call to battle. Thus, they should lose this motion by default. Uh, he Bad. said that they could also uh, use blunted practice-style swords to uh, to to. Is to this fight guy this out. just a larper? Is he just a larper? <laughs> it's like free time. Good call, and yeah. It really. It, when we get to the blunted practice swords, immediately I was like, he's in a park with his yeah. band of larpers. Mm-hmm. They all thought this was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um. I yeah, couldn't I don't say. Know. I mean, I mean, I don't know the guy, but yeah, <laughs> you got me on that one. Well, let us know next week, Bill, after your dad listens to this episode, if he has any advice for either party. Yeah, I'll see case. what New Jersey law says about, uh, yeah, about trials by know. combat. In that United States. Right. <laughs> Thanks for bringing this one, Bill. It was a great one. See you next week, guys. And Alex. Thank you, Amber. We also want to thank our producers, Keller Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Frank Runyon, and contributing reporters, Mike LaSusa and Lauren Berg. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner. For more information about anything we've talked about today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.